And if you really think about it, there is no I, right? It's called like the illusion of self. So a good a good way to test this is I see you right now and you are a person. Yovitsa, mm-hmm. right? I may be pronouncing wrong again and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, no, you're good. But if I, if I zoom in on you, right, you become cells. If I zoom in more on you, you become molecules. Mm. If I zoom away from you, you become your house. If I zoom in out more, you become Tennessee. Zoom out more, you become the earth. And you could just keep zooming out. So the big question is like, where do you start and where do you end? Mm. At the end of the day, I, your name, is just an approximation you use to the amalgamation of all your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and perceptions. What's your what's your background? So I was born in Belgium, then I moved to Spain, and then I moved to the United States. But both of my parents are French, so I'm French by default. <laughs> mm. yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I've been to Belgium. I, I get the I get the ethnic divide between the North and the South, the Flemish and the French. And Dude, uh, and interesting language. Yeah, yeah, it's it's super interesting, and this is a perfect way to start a podcast. So, um, let the people know who you are. What's the, what's a ten thousand foot view? Why are you on a podcast with uh, with a guy whose name you can barely pronounce? What's the story? <laughs> well, I also have a name I can barely pronounce. So that's true. That's true. Um, Clement. <laughs> but yeah, like I was saying, uh, born in Belgium, moved to Spain, and then moved to the United States. I uh, went to a small little school with twenty people in my grade up until like eighth grade, and then Ooh, uh, went why. to yeah, and then went to high school with like six hundred people in my grade. So that was a little step up. Um, and then went to Penn State to do mechanical engineering and then a one-year master's, kind of like an MBA program. Um, and then after that, decided to go work at IBM as a consultant. So that was pretty fun. Um, my first project was doing this IoT dashboard for the Air Force. The second one was doing data analytics for uh, the Department of Defense, which is a lot. They spend like $375 billion a year on contracting alone. Um, and my third project was... What's up? I was saying very efficient, the Department of Defense. They're, uh, <laughs> exactly. They're just, they're just giving out money left and right. They have too much stuff to spend on. I feel bad for them just because it's like, imagine trying to spend $375 billion. Like, what are you going to spend it on? <laughs> Tanks well, and they, they find a way. <laughs> they do find a way. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so then my third project was driving the sales presentation of a $10 billion cloud deal for the NSA. Um hmm. And during my time at IBM, I also did a lot of patenting. So I patent, I submitted 130 patents in a one-year span, 50 of which are filed, and I think 13 or 12 are issued right now. Um, but after that, I was kind of like in this purpose gap. I was like, there's a guy who I draw a lot of inspiration from called Naval Ravikant, who founded AngelList. And he had a really good uh, quote that was from Confucius, and it's, everybody lives two lives, and the second starts when you realize you only live one. And that spoke to me and I really wanted to pursue something that could make me kind of make me money while I sleep. So I could kind of just pursue my passions and just kind of live my life in a free way. Um, so I decided to write a book. Uh, I could code, but couldn't code that well, but I read a lot. So I was like, Hey, might as well giving, might as well uh, try writing a book. So I've been doing on that for the past year and a half uh, and been loving it ever since made some cards on the side to kind of help promote the book which is called the idea space. And yeah, that's kind of the 10,000 foot view. So let me, let me ask you this before we start diving into the book and the experience of finding your second life. You know, you go, you go from a school with 20 students to a school with 600 students to a school with, you know, allegedly a hundred thousand students at Penn state, or if you want to call them students, 
party animals. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. I'm kidding. I, I went to UT. It's okay, it's not much better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the? What was it? For, okay, first of all, how old were you when you came to the states? Great question. I was six years old, and for the first two weeks, I cried and went home every single day because I didn't speak English. <laughs> mm, yeah, I feel you. I was I was ten. So. Um, one, there's a culture shock in coming to America and being like, what is this crap? Why do I have no freedom? At least in my opinion, um, especially coming from places in Europe where when you come home at age six, mom might send you to the grocery store before you go to the playground, mm. um, to America where we have the dumbest concept ever of a soccer mom where a grown adult has to drive you every, to every activity. And then we wonder why we have incompetence as adults. Like, Hey, figure out how to you know <laughs> get to a playground by yourself, kid. But Anyway. Question for you. So, Did like the big, like for me, the biggest thing I noticed when I got to America was everything was so big. Yes. Did you also kind of like, did that, yeah, similar experience? Big and stupid big to where nothing is convenient. <laughs> yeah. Like, why the hell is I this totally Walmart agree. parking lot so damn big to where I, it takes me three years and, you know, wandering through the wilderness to get to the actual front door of the store? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, uh, urban planning is not a, a thing we're good at in America. So <laughs> we're just like, we'll just go big. At least yeah, we're we'll not go, in Texas. We'll, I feel like if we went to Texas, everything would have been like 12 times bigger at least. And you're like, oh shit. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I live in Tennessee. It's pretty damn big everywhere. So it's it's not much smaller <laughs> than Texas. Anyway, so sorry. So you come, you, you come to America, you have that transition. You go to a school of 20 people and then you go to a school of, you know, 600 people in your class. Like, talk to me about that. Like, how did that impact the way you view the world and like just some of the insecurities maybe as a kid and things like that? Yeah, no, fantastic question. So 20 people in your grade, you know, everybody, right? Right. And everybody gets along. Well. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you're like you're friends with everybody um, and you don't, there is some clickiness to it, but you don't really get that just because like there's 20 kids. So you try to just make friends with everyone. Um but yeah, I think it was a sheltering experience in a way, just because you don't meet all these different people from different backgrounds. Um, of course, there were some people with very unique backgrounds, but going to school with 600 people is just more people, right? Just different stories, right. different experiences. Um, so that was a little tough not knowing anyone, but I knew some people. I had I swam back in the day, so um, I knew some people from swimming, and it's a good experience, right? Like, I think you probably experienced something similar when you first moved here. You're like, you don't speak the language and you're trying to figure it out. You have to make friends. So right. it was that same sort of vibe, right? You don't know anyone else, but at least you can speak the language. Now try to make some friends. <laughs> yeah. It's uh make some friends, figure out all the social cues, which, oh, yeah. again, I came at 10, which is still not as bad as 15 or 14. Um, you know, it's, it's it, six is better than 10, 10 is better than 15. I mean, I'm, I have one of my buddies who came here in the freshman year of high school and he was like, what the crap is this? <laughs> yeah. You know, you got, so you already you all speak have, the language. Yeah. So I speak German, which is where I lived for seven years before, before we came to America. And then I speak Serbo Croatian, uh, which is a native language of what was Yugoslavia. Um, Sweet. Yeah. So, um, okay. So you, you go get an engineering degree. And then you end up leading a sales team for a cloud deal for the NSA, like engineer and sales doesn't really go together <laughs> typically. Like what, what's the story there? Yeah. So like, um, so the first couple of gigs I had as a consultant were all client focused. So, uh, first one was the air force. Then you had department of defense as a whole. And I wanted to do something more internal focused, um, just to switch it up, keep it fresh and just kind of, I'm all about building a well-rounded 
kind of background, just kind of mm-hmm. Elon Musk has a good saying, do a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. So I love I like that motto. So I was like, all right, let's try to get into sales. And I got really lucky. One of my mentors, um, he's the man and he kind of hooked me up and was like, took me under his wing and said, hey, you want to work on this with us? And I was like, yes, <laughs> please. Um, so just worked with that. And it was a couple month process. I worked hard on that um, every day, including weekends, except for Thanksgiving um, for like three months, just because wanted to make a good impression. And it worked yeah. out really well. We had a killer presentation. Um, and it was just a really humbling experience all around just to get to work with uh, IBM's president even came to the presentation, which was really cool just to interact with him a little bit. Um, yeah, just all around awesome experience. So how old were you at the time? Um, great question. Probably like 23, 24, around that age. So what did you have to overcome from a nervousness standpoint or from like a self-talk standpoint or from a confidence standpoint to be able to even do that? Because I don't know about you, but at 23, a lot of times you ask yourself like, why me? Why should anybody even listen to me? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. Um, and I think a big thing of that was realizing everybody's just human at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have like these partners and these people that are really senior that are very wise and have gone through it, but you should still challenge them. Right. Um, and I think a big thing for me was realizing that you're not defined by your title. Like it's literally a fictitious thing people label on you. So it's like, right. if you want to be a partner, do work a partner would do. Um, mm. And that was kind of my mentality going through that. And yeah, just trying to treat everyone well, respecting good ideas, challenging ideas that were not as good um, and really just trying to do my part and always bringing something to the table. So if we had a meeting or something, coming with a presentation in hand, coming with information to kind of help drive progress. I think that was kind of my mentality for that. Okay. So I'm curious here. So you, you mentioned the quote of, you know, everybody lives two lives and the second one starts when you realize you only have one or you only live one. Um, so up to this point, you're kind of on this traditional trajectory of being a, you know, corporate machine, man. Like you got your, uh, you, you've got your little track you're going to run on and you're going to do it for the next 40 years and you're going to get your gold watch at the, at 65 and they're going to let you out the pasture <clears throat> and then shoot you at 67, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what made you have the realization of, of living your two lives and trying to do the things that you want to do? And because, what I find just in general with folks that talk is like, what, especially the older you get, like once you are stuck in a rut of not rut, but just in a system of, Hey, here's how I'm supposed to do things. Like all creativity is kind of thrown out the window. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with that. And creativity is a big thing for me. That's kind of what I did. Why I did the patents just cause it was a creative outlet. Um, mm. but yeah, no, that's a good question on kind of why I did it. I, I was just listening to a lot of podcasts, reading a lot of books, and I really think reading is super important. Um, Naval has another quick quote. It's like, there's two types of people in the world, people who read and people who don't. Um, and it just opens up your world to experiences that you wouldn't really normally get from a standard learning environment. Um, and I just really, I don't know, I would just read a lot about interesting books. I'm a huge nerd, if you can tell already. Um, I love reading math and science textbooks. So I would just read kind of math book textbooks in the morning and then shift it over to physics textbooks. And um, I love that stuff, but it felt like it was missing something just because for me, being an engineer, it felt everything was like an approximation. 
And then when I was reading these really science heavy and math heavy textbooks, it felt the math especially felt very punctual where some like math is the only place where something can be true everywhere else in life. It's not like that. For example, in like physics or science in general, you start with a hypothesis and then you test your hypothesis through observations. And then at the end of the test, you either reject your hypothesis or you fail to reject. At no point do you prove something to be true. Right. Mm. And that's kind of like how natural laws get made. Um, And so that's that kind of like really punctual mindset of math really just made me want to pursue something like that because I just found it so interesting. And I just kind of took a leap of faith at some point. And I think that's important to do at any point in life and just kind of went for it. It's interesting. So you're reading these textbooks, single-handedly keeping Pearson in business. Um, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) All the $120 textbooks you're probably buying from them. Yeah. So, so at what point do you go like, Hey, you know, how old are you now? I'm 26. Okay. 26 wise, just a sage old man at this point. You know, at (laughs) what point do you go and say, you know what? I got something to say, damn it. I'm going to put this in a book. Um, what what was that? What was that story like? What happened? Yeah, no, fantastic question. And a lot of people were, were telling me like a Mark Twain quote, it's like, oh, you can't write a book until you're 30 because you don't have enough life experiences until you're 30. And I was like, okay. But then I also looked at a lot of other people like um, Blaise Pascal, who was a scientist back in the day, and Galois, who was a mathematician back in the day, who were like 16 and 18 when they dropped their theories. Like their 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 best work was like in their teenage years. So I was like, mm. all right, if like age is just a number. Um, and when I started writing the book, the whole key was around writing things that withstood the test of time. So like I started writing about math around like Clopin, the Cantor set and like measure. Then I got into kind of physics. Um, and then at the end I got a little bit into kind of history and how that plays into that. And then just kind of scrapped the whole thing in a way and just completely, rearranged it so like the first draft was 600 pages and now it's like 233 pages with a picture on every page because my whole thing is if a picture is worth a thousand words then an idea is worth a thousand pictures Mm, interesting so i mean what was the process like though like of of writing because like the thought of like taking your thoughts and putting them on paper um is very daunting in so many different ways so what was that process like did you have like a specific process around how you made sure you wrote every day or when you wrote or what you wanted to get across or yeah, just talk to me about that. Yeah. Another fantastic question. Um, so I think my writing started with journaling really like just mm. write for myself and just, I didn't even care what I wrote. I just wrote. Um, and then when I wanted to do the book, I started with an outline and then I just stared at the outline. I was like, what's next? I guess I start writing. Right. And when I started writing, I just wrote. I didn't really care what it said. I made a lot of jokes in there. I put pictures that were hilarious to me in there um, and just kind of saw where the story went. Right. I had this outline and then I just started writing, writing. I would start in the morning. I used to go rock climbing, then rock climbing, come home, tea, write for a little bit uh, until the afternoon, work out, write a little bit more, and then kind of just think about what I will write about for the next day, like let the subconscious do the work. And then by the time the night came, I was like, all right, I know what I'm going to write about just because it's kind of like a story and you just kind of just follow Mm. the lead after a certain point. So what did you end up writing about? What's the book about? 
Yeah, great question. So it's called the idea space, awakening your non-self. Um, and the idea space, so basically I, I want hold something in your hand. Like I got my AirPod case, like just literally like hold something physical. Okay. Okay. Like you can see it, you can mm-hmm. hold it, you can feel it and others can see it. But now close mm-hmm. your eyes. Okay. And picture what you're holding in your hand in your head. Can okay. anybody else see what you're seeing in your head right now? No. Right. So the whole point is that your idea space, all your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and perceptions has zero measure. And because it has mm. zero measure, it looks like nothing to the outside world. Um, and so your idea space has two other properties, uh, or the two main properties are it has zero measure and then it's uncountable. And uncountable just means it's infinitely deep, but it's a depth of infinity larger than the infinity we used to count, like the one, two, three, um, so that's kind of like the fundamental idea behind the the book. And the whole goal is to make mindfulness as real as gravity by giving it a scientific foundation, by showing where consciousness in the mind lies in modern physics with a mathematical kind of foundation. Okay. So where does consciousness lie? Because that that's the big question. You know, let's think about it from a human perspective. Humans are the only creatures on earth that are at least that we're aware of that are conscious of their own existence. Like my, I love my dog. My dog has no idea that he exists. You know, he just, he just does exist. I know he will die someday. He has no idea he will die someday. Right. And the fact that we humans are aware of the fact that we are going to die and that we don't live in a constant state of anxiety over the fact that we have knowledge of the fact that we will cease to exist is mind boggling. That we're just kind of like, cool, <laughs> like, let's chug along. Um, so, yeah, where does where, where does consciousness exist? What's the what's the theory? Yeah. So it's, again, more so from like a mathematical and physics standpoint. So the big thing is everyone is at the center of their own observable universe. So what is your observable okay. universe? It's just a giant sphere centered on you. And everything right. you see in your observable universe is in the past. So, for mm-hmm. example, um, it takes eight minutes for light from the sun to reach you because it's really far away and light travels at 186,000 miles per second, which is fast. (laughs) Um, But when the light from the sun reaches you, you're seeing the sun as it was eight minutes ago. Right. Right. So you can kind of extrapolate that idea backwards and like you're seeing light or the gravitational effects from the center of the Milky Way as they were like 20 minutes ago. And then the farther the galaxy is, the more back, the farther back in time you're looking. That's why the James Webb telescope that was just launched they're able to see uh, a galaxy that was formed 300 million years after the Big Bang because you're just looking back in time and light from that galaxy takes time to reach us. So, yeah, so you're light in the center year of your- is basically, yeah, light year is years in. So for us, a, year, a light year is 365 days at the speed of light is how long it takes. So if something's three light years away, if the if it's traveling at the speed of light, it'll take three years to get to you, right? Yes, exactly. And you'll see how that object was three years ago. Right. You don't see it because, as it is current. Yes, exactly. So like everything you see is in the past, which is weird because then it makes you think, what is the present is if everything is you see is in the past? Um, so the whole idea is that at the center of your observable universe is your idea space. And your idea space, mm-hmm. again, just holds all your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and perceptions and has zero measure. Um, and there's this other aspect to it that I call the sunset conjecture for kind of like, a, I'll give you a little story. Um, so have you ever been on the beach and looking at the sunset at night with your friend and the sun's golden rays are pointing right towards you? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you might have your friend with there, but then you're, you you look at your friend, you're like, hey, look at this. The sun's golden rays are pointing right towards me. Your friend's going to be like, no, you idiot. The sun's golden rays are pointing right towards me. Um, right. So that idea is like everyone is at the center of their own observable universe, right? So everyone's idea space is at the center of their own observable universe. And in a similar way as to how the sun's light hits you uniquely um, and has like a very unique perspective on the sun sunset. If you go back to the idea that your observable universe, everything you see is in the past, then what is your edge of your observable universe, right? Mm. It's kind of like the big bang, um, right. the hypothetical creation. So in a similar way as to the sunset hits you uniquely, the gravitational effects of the big bang hit you uniquely. So in a way you're always like, you always have the option to kind of reinvent yourself because the universe, the, the big bang didn't just happen in our observable universe. The big bang is still happening in our observable universe, if that makes sense. Interesting, because it's ever expanding. Yes, that's part of it. It's ever and expanding. Like you, and then, like you said, like your experience, it takes time for all the interesting. Okay, but like, so I, I'm picking up what you're putting down, but what does this mean for your average person just walking around? You know, because like, think about it, drive on the interstate, <laughs> you'll see all these different cars and every single one of these people inside these cars is at the center of their own universe. Every single person has their own family, their own friends, their own thoughts, their own, um, <clears throat> you know, way of viewing the world. And, you know, at this very moment in the world, uh, what's today, August 12th, we are arguably in the most polarized setting in our society, whether it's politically, economically, religiously, socially, et cetera, um, at least in the United States and in the West that we have probably been ever. And part of that has to do with the fact that we actually are able to communicate with each other for the first time ever. So we just, we realize how much we don't like each other in a lot of ways. Um, at least that's my theory. So <laughs> how does, how does understanding your idea space and understanding the, the very unique construct that you exist in, how can that help you not hating the hating the other people so much. Amazing question, um, and I think it really comes down to the non-self. Uh, and so you kind of get this dividing line with this kind of model, right? Where you have the science of objects, which is everything you can measure, and then the science of the first person, which is your idea space, right? The things that happen mm -hmm. in your mind. And in order to observe and test what happens in your mind, you kind of have to use mindfulness, which is just awareness of the present moment without judgment. Um, and I think <clears throat> going back to that non-self idea, I think you got talked about this on one of your other podcasts around the ego. Um, mm -hmm. and if you really think about it, there is no I, right. It's called like the illusion of self. So a good, a good way to test this is I see you right now and you are a person, Yovitsa, mm -hmm. right. I may be pronouncing wrong again and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, no, you're good. But if I, if I zoom in on you, right, you become cells. If I zoom in more on you, you become molecules. If I zoom away from you, you become your house. If I zoom in out more, you become Tennessee. Zoom out more, you become the earth. And you could just keep zooming out. So the big question is like, where do you start and where do you end? Mm. At the end of the day, I, your name, is just an approximation you use to the amalgamation of all your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and perceptions. Um, so I think realizing that kind of just is a breath of fresh air because a lot of our times we get lost in thoughts about the a future that's non-existent or about an, an inaccessible past um and just 
maintaining in the moment and being aware of our idea space really helps us limit any sort of angst or kind of any sort of feelings of negative emotions, right, of, of unpleasantness that arise, that arises and just allows us to just see the world as it is, um, which mm. is very relaxing. It's so interesting, because if you look, you know, through human history, and I don't know how much you're familiar with biblical stories, for example, but like the story of, of the Garden of Eden, and Genesis in general, it's the authors are trying to articulate the the challenge that human beings face by recognizing their own consciousness. That is what the apple from the, from the tree or the fruit from the tree is, is us understanding quote unquote sin, which is missing the mark of perfection or the light of God. Um, in the sense that we are aware of our consciousness and we are aware when we do something good versus when we do something wrong, you know what I mean? And us reconciling that, over and over and over and over again. And, you know, our ancestors figured out how to share that via stories and allegories, such as the garden of Eden, um, as well as, you know, thousands of other stories probably throughout human history. But that's the one that most people listening to this podcast will be aware of. Um, so it's just this constant refinement throughout our history of how do we, again, how do we reconcile the fact that we know that we exist? Yeah. And that's like a million dollar question. It's like you go back to Descartes and he goes, I think therefore I am. Um, but you get like this weird idea. So like there's this, well, the whole concept of free will, right? Or it's like, do we have mm -hmm. free will or do we not? And in my mind, it's both. We have it and we don't, right? Um, okay. So we have it because every single waking moment, I can be aware of what's happening and just notice what's happening. And it's kind of like a choice point in my life. But at the same time, if you think about it from like a scientific perspective, like you're made of DNA, which makes up your cells, which makes up uh, kind of like their skin, which makes up your body, which makes up your organs and everything. And then you have like molecules at the smallest level. And the way that we describe those is always like a random assortment of goods, right? So if like mm -hmm. your body is made up of a random assortment of goods, then why are you not like a random thing? Um, right. But, and I think that goes back to the dualistic ideas, right? Where you have non-duality, where two opposing ideas can be true at once. And in math, this is best explained through this concept of clopen, uh, where you have certain thing that can be open and closed at the same time, which we can talk about as well. But I think in terms of free will, it's like we have it and we don't. It's like mm. both are true at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting becoming a dad having a six month old at the house, just watching her become essentially a human, like going from not existing to like being inside my wife's belly to being, you know, pooping on me yesterday and me <laughs> having to clean that up. Like it's just, it is just so bananas to think about the fact that like this little human is a whole human and she is our child. However, she is also not ours. If that makes sense. Like she is her own human. Like, yeah, I don't I get to control her life for it. I don't really want to control her life right now. I want to teach her, but sh she has her own journey in this world. And it's like, like you said, it's, it's random and not random at the same time because it's like random because like what choices will she make? But at the same time, it's not that random because she has two parents that, you know, she's going to inherit 
things from those two parents, whether they're genetic, whether they're physical, whether they're financial, whether they're intellectual, whatever. Um, yeah. So it's, it's been an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, I heard this happens a lot whenever you have a kid that your attention of your, like your view of yourself just kind of shifts completely. And like you go from doing, you wanting to do things for yourself to everything has to be for the kid now. Did you kind of experience a similar mindset shift? Um, yeah, it's not that I wouldn't say everything is for the kid. I would just say everything is within the context of including the kid. Mm. You know, like if I go golfing on a Thursday morning, like it ain't for the kid it's for me, but (laughs) I have to consider how long I'm going to be out. You know what I mean? Um, I have to consider how long I'm going to be gone because of the kid. I have to, uh, now I do, I do, you do, um, you do value different things more. Um, you want to teach certain, there's a, there's definitely a certain level of pressure that comes on you. And there's definitely also a different appreciate, in my opinion, at least a different appreciation for life. There's a, um, yeah, like trees are more green mm. because I like you see, like I said, you see this like life coming into the, into the world and you're like, holy crap, this is incredible. Like yeah, the first time like she you discovered just her you feet. appreciate everything. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, she, the first time she discovered her feet and she was like, oh crap, these are mine. I was like, what on earth is happening right now? She just discovered her feet. This is like, she might as well have discovered America. This is incredible. <laughs> Do you ever think about that yourself too? Then like when you were a kid, you probably discovered your feet at one point in time, right? Like right, that right, beginner's right. mind. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think about, I think about that all the time. I've, uh, I've become more compassionate towards other humans because of becoming a dad. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but just by the simple virtue of who my daughter's parents are, myself and my wife, and any subsequent kids that we have, but just by the virtue of who her parents are, her life experience, I would argue, is going to be significantly better or at least significantly more uh, advantageous than the majority of the world because she has two parents who are together most importantly who love each other most importantly who had a child wanting a child it wasn't a whoopsie Mm. and we're trying to figure out life like we're stable we you know we're adults we're mature we love each other we get along we got a system we wanted a kid if nothing else that huge advantage then on top of that just financially, socioeconomically, um, you know, intellectually, like, look, I'm not a genius, but I'm also not dumb. I know how to, you know, <laughs> be intellectually curious and go find solutions to problems and like being able to teach that to my children and how to problem solve. And I want to, we, both my wife and I want to really expose our kids to different cultures and different worlds and different people to understand like, Hey, just because somebody doesn't look like you or act like you or talk like you or sound like you or whatever, it doesn't make them bad learn to appreciate other cultures. So, um, and then I think about what kind of advantage that will give to my kids. And I'm sure there are disadvantages that I'll create for my kids too somehow. But when I think about those advantages, that'll just give her a leg up in life. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I, I totally feel the compassion thing. And I feel like that's an important characteristic to have just as a human being, just assuming good intentions. It's such a simple thing to do. But like, instead of getting mad at someone for doing something dumb, it's like, okay, I do dumb things too. It's okay. 
Um, yeah. And something else, what you said had me thinking. I had one professor once who said, parenting is the constant act of letting go. Mm. Um, I thought that was beautiful because it's like, that's true. So it's like when you have your kid, you kind of invest all your time and energy into it. And then they slowly get older. And then you look back on it and you're like, oh man, I wish she was still yeah. like a five-year-old. Yeah. Well, and I like what you said about um, viewing things from a lens of compassion. I mean, I, I had to deal with something in my family not too long ago where, you know, people get their feelings hurt about stuff. And I'm sitting here talking to this family member about this other family member. And I'm like, I really don't think he's being malicious. I think he's just a moron. <laughs> like, I just don't, I, I genuinely yeah. don't believe he's very smart. Okay. So I don't think he's trying to hurt you. It's not like he's creating a 5D chess game and he's like, let me, you know, <laughs> let me hurt your feelings. I just think he's an idiot. And the sooner you accept he's a moron, the easier your relationship with this person will be. But I see, it's like, I don't know. So I, th I think everybody is dumb relative to themselves because there's always more things that you don't know than you know. So everyone thinks that they're, they're an idiot. And like, I think for people, it's, of course, everyone will have like their moments where they say stupid things, uh, myself included. Um, but I think a lot of times those come about when you're just not being mindful uh, and, and you're just like got your place somewhere in the clouds, right? Uh, and that's just the dangerous game to play because if you're always living your life in like a fictitious future or in the past, then you're not really living in the present. And that's where life always is. That's the only thing we have. Well, and like the living in the present part, uh, it's it's becoming more and more obvious that that's becoming more and more important because of just the amount of anxiety, for example, people have in our in our society, um, which blows my mind. I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast. I fully understand that anxiety, depression, things like that are real things. There's chemical imbalances, et cetera. Not dismissing it. If you're suffering from it, please go get help because you have to be a functioning functioning human. So please go get help, whatever that may look like, whether it's counseling, whether it's medication, I don't care. Figure out what works for you. However, I just can't relate to it. Like yeah. when I feel anxious, I literally just go like, okay, cool. Why am I feeling anxious about something? Like, cool. All right. Next. I don't know why that is. I don't know if I'm predisposed to something. I don't know if it's my life experience. Um, so a lot of times I struggle and to find empathy for that. Um, even though. I understand it. I just have a hard time relating to it. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's like those are things that come in waves and the kind of magnitude of the wave is different for different people. So for example, my junior year of college, I used to have crippling panic attacks whenever I got into social mm. scenarios for no reason. I don't know why. It just like overcame me. I couldn't breathe and I just wanted to leave. And I would just throw up a lot of the times. And I literally don't know why. Like looking back on it, I think I was just letting the emotions overwhelm me instead of just kind of observing them for what they were. Um, mm. But I, I, for a lot of the angst that exists now, I think um, it's this idea that like everyone gets caught up in terms of these imagined realities, right? Um, that's kind mm. of what Yuval Harari talks about in Sapiens where things are only real because you believe them to be real, like intersubjective realities. So for example, the United States government it's not a physical, real thing. It's only real because it's in our minds, right? In a collective group of people. So it didn't exist. Now it exists. And at one point, it won't exist anymore, just like Rome, right? A right. lot of people in Roman times didn't think Rome wasn't going to exist anymore. 
And when people right. focus a lot of their attention and time on their title, which is again, a fictitious thing, the company that they work for, which is not a bad thing to want to work for them if you're getting value out of it. But when you just put a lot of your time and a lot of your value onto these imagined realities that are always changing, that are always impermanent, it's just going to create stress in your life. Um, not saying they're not important and necessary for the way the world works. Like money is not quote unquote real, but like it used to be seashells. Then it grew to like um, different forms of coins. And then you have paper notes and now it's like digital. And then you have crypto, but like the OG cash was probably just like a banana. <laughs> right, right, right. Hey, I've got a banana. <laughs> Give me an apple. <laughs> exactly. Um, so but, I think, yeah, just realizing that will help reduce angst. Also, shout out to Sapiens. That's a great book. I read that not too long ago. Oh, yeah, dude. You're really, the man. Yeah, really good book. Really, really good. Um, just breakdown of a lot of concepts of of life. And yeah, what there's you said about... Also, go ahead. I was going to say, there's an also another good book, if you like Sapiens, called um, The Sovereign Individual. Definitely okay. check it He's out. Up. It's similar vein. It's uh, James Davison and Reese Wog or Mog. Um, but pretty good book. Okay. Covers the same topics ish. Similar history, a, a, a dash more cynicism and skepticism, but Ooh. takeaways are, are strong. <laughs> a dash more cynicism and skepticism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty skeptical from the get go. Yeah. It's not like you all over here. Like we, we all just like prance around in a field. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like the best part is like, did corn, Dom- domesticate us or did we domesticate corn? That, yeah. I thought that was a good, that was a really good question. Which that is was like, trippy. Sounds silly, but yeah. Yeah, there was, there is some trippy, uh, th- trippy thought processes in there where you're like, huh, what did happen? Um, yeah. And, and, and there's just the entire concept of, like you said, like our collective imagination of, you know, why does the, and, I think a lot of people are asking themselves these questions nowadays, and especially in the Western world, like, why does this government exist? Why does this country exist? Why does this, you know, religion, why does this, you know, school system, whatever it may be, just pick a topic. There's, there's a lot of self-reflection and a lack of self-reflection at the same time. Like, like everybody's really, really aware, but then we're like really lacking self-awareness in our society at the same time. Yeah. And I think a big thing there is realizing the impermanence of it all. Um, I think the Buddha had a good quote, whatever has a nature to arise has a nature to pass away, whether that goes for negative thoughts or just anything. So like in the physical realm, you see this impermanence in something called dark energy, which is constant at every point in space and time. So like you talked about at the beginning, space is universally expanding because of dark energy. Um, And that's kind of creating it's so basically at every point in space and time, you make a circle like right here, it has X Mm -hmm. amount of dark energy in it. I wait three seconds, make another circle over there, same amount of dark energy. And that's kind of like, like pushing everything out away from each other. And it's causing this impermanence in our physical world. And then in our idea space, our idea space is also impermanent. So um, a good way of understanding impermanence is through uncountability, uh, which is that second property of the idea space where um, basically the idea is for every, for in the physical space for every, let's say we have like one meters, right? Zero to one for any point or measurement you make in that zero to one, even an infinite amount, I could always put, I could always pick a point you did not pick. 
And the mathematical idea behind it is called Cantor's diagonal argument. So space-time is uncountable because for any point you pick in space-time, I could always make pick another point you didn't pick. In a similar vein, your idea space, all your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and perceptions are always in a state of flux. They're always changing. And a great way to test this is just to sit down and try to count all your ideas. And you'll <laughs> notice as you do that, like new ones will pop up and be like, hey, it's quiet in here. Or someone will come from behind and be like, hey, there haven't been many thoughts lately. So they're always changing. And the last thing on, on countability is like, imagine you're living in 1680 and uh, you, you're tasked with counting all the different ideas that exist in the world, and you come up with this infinite list. But then in 16, uh, uh, 1686 or something like that, Isaac Newton develops Principia Mathematica, uh, which is where gravity was introduced. Where was the idea of gravity before all of the ideas before it? It wasn't really there, right? So mm-hmm. just kind of showing that space and time are uncountable, and so are your thoughts, and just Understanding that impermanence on a very deep level just really helps not attach to anything, right? I think that's an important principle in a lot of like mindfulness um, practices because when you attach, you, you you can lead to suffering because it's like, I love my water bottle. I don't go anywhere without it, but I know I drop it too many times <laughs> and then yeah. I lose it. So it's like, if I attach myself to it, I'll be upset. So it's just like, just take it for what it is and just see the world, yatabutam, as they say in the uh, um, I want to say Sanskrit, which just means just as it is. Hmm. <clears throat> so what are some of the practical things that you've written about that people could implement once they understand this concept of the impermanence of life and like the, uh, like, you know, cause you're also in a lot of ways, what you're describing is also stoicism, accepting the world for what it is in the moment. Yeah. I love stoicism. I think so there's different types of mindfulness practices, right? You have Zen, you have Buddhism, you have Stoicism, you have yoga, you have walking meditation, you have more sitting meditation or Zazen, as they call it in Zen. Um, so it really depends on what you want to do. I think if you're a beginner, you just start by sitting and counting your breaths, right? Like the breath is always there for you. Um, and it's just super important to have. And then as you develop your practice, you can get into different sort of experiments for example, the headless way is a very interesting mindfulness technique brought on by Douglas Harding, where you just, instead of like picturing a head, you just picture the world appearing where your head would be, um, mm. which sounds very abstract and esoteric, but the more you do it, the more it kind of makes sense. It's kind of like this idea that I said before, where you can't really describe it to someone else. It's this experience that happens in the science of the first person in your idea space in a similar way, I couldn't see my AirPod case before and everything right. just happens here. It's something that happens up in your head. But yeah, so in the, at the beginning of every of the book, every chapter, starting from chapter two, there's a little mindfulness exercise just to really kind of just center you, get you in the space. And then I'm also releasing uh, two mindfulness products in like the next month or so all around kind of the first one's a challenge and a reflection with quotes. And the second one's just a hundred different daily mindfulness exercises. And goes from easy to abstract um, and just trying to get you thinking in different ways to remain present. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's all, that's literally all mindfulness is. <laughs> There's nothing more to yeah, it. It's remaining. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. The Greeks have a saying that um, someone is never dead as long as somebody remembers them. Mm. I like you know, that a lot. So, you know, if you're present in the minds of the people that live now and you live 2000 years ago, are you really dead? You know, because we're still yeah. talking about Plato. 
That's we're true. still talking about, and- you know, Peter the Great. We're still talking about, you know, whoever. So, you know, what what does that look like? You know, within your own family, within your own community, within your own country, within your own world, within your own life. You know, I yeah. remember my grandparents vividly. They're all gone, but I still remember all of them. And what's crazy is I remember my great grandparents and I've never met them. But because of the stories, I have vivid images of them and their personalities even though they both died one eight years and one 10 years before I was born. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And like, I love this, the whole stoicism aspect. And there was a guy uh, in ancient Greece called Heraclitus who said, um, no man steps into the same river twice for it is not the same river and he yeah. is not the same man. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. And I think that like that really hits home on the idea of impermanence and just stoicism in general is awesome because it. I think it's a really res- resilient mindset. So, for example, a good thing to do is just if you wouldn't be upset about something in a week from now or like two hours from now, then why would you be mm. upset about it now? Mm. That's a that man. I wish I could like tattoo that on everybody's forehead. And do, like, <laughs> chill out, everybody. It ain't that crucial. It really ain't that crucial. <laughs> um, how can folks get a hold of you? Yeah, fantastic question. So. Um, I'm rebranding my the website, theideaspace.io, which is kind of the main form that'll host everything for The Idea Space. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, with my name, Clément Decop, and then uh, at The Idea Space with underscores in between uh, each word on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. So those are like the main forms of uh, communication right now. Cool. And I'll have obviously all that in the description. But before I let you go, so one one last thing: if you uh, if you could go back to eighteen year old you, wide eyed, bushy tailed about the world, if there's one piece of advice you could give yourself, knowing all that you know about yourself and knowing all that you know about the world, what would that be? Hmm. Oh man, you asked the best questions. Um, best thing of advice, uh, I really the biggest thing is kind of like Elon says to so do a little bit of everything. I think just building a very well-rounded idea space is important just because you don't know what you like. You don't know what you don't like, especially as a youngin. Um, so just try different things. If figuring out you don't like something is just as important as figuring out you like something. And right. yeah, just kind of go from there. Um, pursue your passions. And again, the biggest the biggest takeaway is everybody lives two lives. You, The second one starts when you realize you only live one. So start that second life as soon as you can. I like that. Uh, <laughs> I, I wrote down that quote in my notebook uh, where I keep keep track. So start your second life. <laughs> yeah. Soon. All right. Well, I appreciate you. Um, I appreciate you coming on for uh, for everybody listening. Again, I will have all the just details, etc. in the in the show description. But no, this was fun. I mean, I like, uh, I, I, it's a Friday morning we're recording and I like going into a different, uh, headspace. Sometimes the, the conversations we have are real tangible and, and very direct and like specific stories. And then sometimes like, let's just talk about like abstract philosophical concepts and see, see where that takes us. But, um, I appreciate you coming on. This was fun. I, um, for everybody listening, obviously show description, feel free to reach out to me directly on the website, work with the or you can find me on LinkedIn, et cetera. And outside of that, hope you guys have a good rest of your week.